0: And thank you for tuning in to this Words and Nerds podcast takeover. My name is Josephine Taylor, and I'm speaking from Wajak budja where I live and work, and where sovereignty was never ceded. Today, I'm in conversation with Alan Fife about his novel Tea, published by Transit Lounge. Alan is originally from Mandurah, Australia, the unceded country of the Bindurab Nation. His Verse and prose can be found in Westerly, Overland, Australian Poetry Journal and Cottonmouth. He was an inaugural editor of UWA creative writing journal Trove and a prose editor for American web journal Unlikely Stories. He is a winner of the Karl Popper Philosophy Award, was shortlisted for the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, awarded second place in the 2023 Tom Collins Poetry Prize and has been selected as a WA Poets, Inc. Emerging Poet for 2022-2023. In manuscript, his debut novel, *T* received short listings for both the Tag Hungerford Prize and the Chaffinch Press Aware Prize in Ireland. Alan is currently a PhD con- candidate at the University of WA, where he is writing a novel in chiastic structure. And he has his first poetry collection called God, Sleep and Chaos, coming out with Gazebo Books in 2024. So congratulations on that, Alan, and welcome.
1: Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on.
0: Not a problem. Uh, first up, could you please give a synopsis of tea for our listeners just so we have a, an idea of what we're talking about today?
1: Ah, I hate doing synopses. Uh, you know, you got this uh, set... Thing that's so complex, you need seventy thousand words to say it, and then publishers and agents and stuff love those things. They love you to reduce it down to a couple of hundred words. Um, That's right. The
0: elevator pitch. The elevator. Yeah, the
1: elevator pitch. So I'll, I'll give you listeners a brief idea. Uh, So a young man, uh, twenty-three, three-year-old man, uh, comes. Um, into the outskirts of Mandra Pinjara from uh, dwelling up, where he has money in, money in his pocket from fruit picking. Um, and his intention is to buy methamphetamine off of a dealer called Gulp. On arriving there, he finds Gulp dead uh, under mysterious circumstances. And he steals Gulp's meth and determines to become a dealer himself. Uh, and shortly afterwards, he witnesses a man falling out of the sky. Um, and then we go into uh, the, being, you know, uh, trade-orientated, uh, his experience with methamphetamine. We go into the community of the economic margins around the Peel region, mandra Pinjara, that uh, uses stuff uh, and um, uh, some more strange magical happenings uh, uh, in, uh, say, or Timothy's story.
0: Oh, okay. Um, and we have a vast array of characters, um, mm. including, you know, obviously T and um, his supplier Cardo and um, Laurie Bird and um, well, Gulp, I guess, figures in in a way too in the narrative. Could you just introduce us to the primary characters who you see as the primary characters in the novel?
1: yeah sure uh so gulp is a primary character even though he's dead at the start of it he kind of haunts the novel um (laughs) uh you know metaphorically and yeah actually in (laughs) in the later chapters yeah Yeah. literally uh and he's uh um uh he's a a kind of door-to-door delivery meth dealer if you like which is what uh T or Timothy becomes, uh, most of the characters in the book are known by nicknames. Um, I really like the idea of a social novel, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a community interacting, and frequently the way this type of community will interact is by knowing people by nicknames. So everybody's kind of got a nickname. Uh, T uh, finds, briefly finds romance with um, uh, a woman called Laurie Bird. Uh, who is a kind of underground real estate agent fixing up up deals for people who might otherwise not be able to secure a rental. Um, uh, Not a meth addict herself, um, uh, but there are other meth-addicted characters in there. There's Cardo, who's a kind of wholesaler, who uh, is Gulp's former best friend and comes to uh, use uh, T or Timmy to... I'm going to refer to him as Timmy throughout this because that's the way he exists in my brain. Um, sure. Who, who kind of uh, uses t- Timmy as an emotional replacement for the loss of his best friend. Um, and uh, Timmy is, um, he kind of plays up to this in order to get the, to get the method a good deal from Cardo. Um, so, yeah, that's the main cast of characters. There's also a character called Gobbo. Uh, mm. who serves as a sort of foil for Cardo. He's involved in this main crowd, a sort of permanent um, drug party that's going on inside of Cardo's shed. Uh, and, yeah, those characters revolve around there, so along, along with a lot of minor characters. I try to yeah. write even minor characters as people who've, who've had childhoods, so there's a lot of information in my brain about what happened to them in their lives kind of off the page, the off-the-page work, if you like. But that's the... That's the main cast, if you like.
0: Mm. And you really have that sense of, of that. All of the characters, Nerve and Tongue and Sean Elgin, uh, you know, all of them really, for me, read as very as real people. So clearly, that kind of off the page work that you did has, has paid off in the sense of, of that they, they really leap from the page. Um, given that, where did they come from in your imagination?
1: Uh, well, that's a complex question. Uh, where did they come from? In my imagination.
0: Well, uh, where okay. did they come from? In, you know, where did where did these where did they come from? Are they drawn from reality, imagination? Are they compilations? Are they, are yeah, they kind I see of what you mean. yeah yeah?
1: yeah. Uh, so it's an imaginary novel. It's a fiction novel. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, of course, um, they come from uh, prototypes of people from the area. I'm from the area, and um, I'll get this out. At, at this point of the interview, so it's not sort of hanging over things, I have been a methamphetamine user. Um, I have been involved in that crowd and that economy and all that kind of thing. And you don't want to, if you're writing a fiction novel, you don't want to use real people. It's It can be kind of hurtful to them. Um, so while these people don't exist, while they're imaginary um uh those certainly representative of types and of ideas and of philosophies uh floating around that world yeah mm.
0: yeah uh, well thanks for your honesty because i i think that there's always that thing of how much of our real lives come into our novels but at the same time clearly this is a profound work of imagination as well so um yeah, i, I think that's, that's never literally to seen suggest. anybody
1: levitate so that's <laughs> Yeah, that, that's important <laughs> for people to remember. I think like, you know, where where it's a close observation and I think it's going to be apparent to anybody who gets 15 pages into this that I know how smoking anth- methamphetamine works. Um, uh, I
0: think so, yeah. Yeah,
1: but um, I think it's really important that, um, uh, that people know this isn't an autobiographical thing, you know. Um, maybe there's some levels of what they call Romanoclef, you know, uh, things that uh revolve around my, my real life. Um, but I like fiction, I like writing imaginative stories. I like imagining not real people and um and moving the moving the around a chessboard of a narrative.
0: Absolutely. And also yeah. too, if you kind of fall more into that thing of of seeing things as an autobiography, it take doesn't take into account the kind of the the um years of of graft and and inner work that is part of writing a novel oh, yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. Um. So, poet Lucy Dugan has said that tea works the margins, both in terms of place and subject of the culture around Matthews in utterly compelling ways. What is it about writing the marginalised that appealed to you here?
1: Okay. Uh. So, uh, relating back to what I've just said, um, because I've lived, um, on the economic margins, have been, um, out of money of. I've lived in, uh, even though Laurie Bird's not a real person, I've lived in one of those kind of illegal uh, rental setups um, uh, in a house with no cooking equipment um, and holes punched through the walls and satanic graffiti all over it and that kind of thing. Uh, I guess that it appeals to me because it's an unseen bit of life. Part of the theme of the book is about being unseen and, um, and it's not something I find a lot in Australian literature. Um, Australian literature is statistically, they have just done a study on it, uh, a very upper to middle class pursuit. Um, you know, most of the people in the public, publishing industry come from private school backgrounds and that kind of thing. Uh, so um, it appeals to me to kind of testify about that in a way. Um, it also appeals to me um, because these are characters that I can relate to. Everybody wants to read things that um, they can uh, that either open up new worlds to them or uh, that can resonate in their own lives. Um, and so seeing a kind of lack of that, you know, they say you write the kind of thing you would like to read. So that's the kind of thing I would like to read. And I hope to continue to do so to uh, to delve more into um, uh, those ideas and those economies. I should point out so that it's not just about math. I think that would be a pretty boring book in the same way I think if I did like direct memoir, that would be a pretty boring book. Um, I think that um, it's about the things I wanted to show in here, are, are the kind of economies of that, the idea of the underground real estate market um, is... An economy of people struggling to survive. Um, The drug market is an economy of people struggling to survive and I wanted to present that in kind of late capitalist terms and um, show how that might actually work um, because I don't think people know about it. Drugs are kind of used in literature quite a lot as either a metaphorical thing or a sensationalist thing. Um, So I wanted to make not just drugs but that life of struggle uh, a um, an apparent thing and maybe show some of the mechanics of it
0: and that's I think just listening to that to me that's like a really important corrective in terms of representation as you say um, so that's 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 important work I th- I think to what one thing I really noticed about the book and it's it's really lovely that you you do this is that uh, that you don't there's no flinching away from the reality of the kind of um, the the kind of outcome of meth use and long-term meth use and so on. You know, it's mm. really it it kind of mucks up lives and relationships. I could have used another word there, yeah. uh, but also you ha- you balance that really well, I think, and. and this speaks to a little bit to what you are saying about real estate and showing the lives properly. It, 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 this isn't stereotypes. You're really adding depth to those stereotypes that I think that um, those who haven't experienced this kind of life might think in the terms of stereotypes. You really add depth. You give humanity and intelligence to the characters and, and there's compassion and you show them as, um, you know, complex. They're not, they're not bad. They're not good. You know, they're, they're everything. Uh, just as everyone is. So it really kind of in some ways for me um, get, gets rid of or, or reduces that dividing line. There was a lot that I could relate to. I haven't been a meth user, but there was a lot that I could relate to oh, in, really? the, in, in this world that you've created. Um, and you have really created a, a really distinctive sense of place in this version of Mandra. knowing, knowing Mandra and myself, um, not as obviously as well as you do, but there's these beautifully lyrically descriptive moments um, countering that sort of grittiness of the narrative or informing in that grittiness. And you also bring the past into the present in the references to the colonizer Thomas Peel, um, the Peel region, and the impacts on the Binjare people. Could you talk about this past that you bring in as a sort of counter-narrative and, and how it functions. What's your intention in bringing this in?
1: Oh, sure. So uh, you asked me to talk about the main characters earlier. Um, it was never really my intention to make Timmy the main character of the book. My intention was to make uh, Mandra or the broader Peel region, um the main character of the book. Uh, my copy editor actually said that to me. She said, Kate Goldsworth, he said, uh, it seems to me that Mandra is the main character of this book mm. or at least a character in it and I, I felt really elated by that because i felt like i'd got the writing right um uh when she said that because uh, it is meant to be a main character um you know post colonial mandra it's not my place to talk about pre colonial mandra obviously that would be the place of a first nations person um but um uh, you know, having this familiarity with a feeling it as a as a thing that goes with me all through my life, um if I'm giving characters childhoods, then uh, it felt to me like I should give you know colonial mandra its childhood um hmm. and that is its childhood, and in a broader sense, it's the childhood of a lot of towns and places around Australia, you know the first nation people. They weren't silly. They chose good places to live, you know, with water sources and food and all that kind of thing, and that attracted um, uh, the settlers. Uh, so um, this becomes, you know, the story of Northern, the story of Perth or Baloo, um, as the original name was, Mandagordab was the original name of Mandra, Those places all have uh, pre-existing names and a lot of them have, well, let's face it, all of them. Are formed by terrible acts of violence um, against the original inhabitants. Um, so, um, yeah, in making Mandra a character, um, that I thought that I had to be des- as descriptive and as kind of foundational about that as anything else. That's what I meant by the use of that a little bit of history and folklore. I think I've told it more as a kind of folkloric thing. Than i have mm-hmm. as a historical thing um it's not a historical novel um in that sense uh because i was more interested in the way people felt about mandra than uh in the way that hard history happened although you know there are some hard bits of history in there the pinjara massacre that i just that i touch on in there uh, did really happen and um Governor Sterling and Thomas Peel were really there firing guns at it. Mm. Yeah.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think it does function in that folkloric way. It's, it's There's sort of apocryphal elements. There's kind of elements that you correct, and um, uh, it, it's like a story. It's not, as you say, just presenting facts. Yeah, you want to um,
1: be careful. You don't want yeah. people to be taking their idea of history from your fictional novel, really. Yes. Um I think, like, the true history of the Kelly gang, a lot of people mm-hmm. um, thought that um, some of the history provo- that Peter Carey made up in there was actually true, that Ned Kelly's dad um, wore a dress. Maybe he did. Um, I'd like to think he did, but um, at the same time, there's no historical backing for that. So um, no. that's kind of become attached to the Ned Kelly mythology as a bit of history. Um, uh so oh, that's um,
0: interesting. I, I didn't yeah. know about that because that, Peter Carey does that a lot, kind of creates these, um, you know, facts that aren't facts, um, yeah. And in, he's, he's, in, telling in his a story.
1: he's trying to make yeah. it an interesting story, and it does make it an interesting story. In and it, you know, gone on into the movie turns into a really wonderful queer reading of Ned Kelly and Joe Byrne, I thought. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was absolutely great, that that creative space where you can do that with the characters and in some way it makes sense. But at the same time, um, I didn't personally, because we're touching on First Nation, First Nation issues there, I didn't personally want to be the historical teller of that because um, it's absolutely not my place. So I wanted to find a way without, you know, stressing the point to make it clear that it's, it's a kind of a folkloric telling. It's a it's the telling of somebody who has kind of lived in Mandurah and heard all this folklore. Yeah, yes,
0: It's a very folkloric book in
1: a lot of ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any parallel, and I think I might have read this maybe in a review or something, parallel of self-destructiveness of meth to the greediness of colonisers? Was that one of your intents or not really?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, oh, well. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess failure is a major theme of the book. Um, so the idea of Thomas Peel as a kind of a failure, you know, he never he ended up in massive debt. He never, you know, Mm -hmm. he did all those terrible things, but never really saw any profit of it. Um, so um, I wanted to to draw out that idea of failure and um, you know, Mandra as a character and all those kind of people in the book who fail, um, that this might be a kind of haunting in the background um, of the place itself, um, uh, a place kind of um, uh, kind of forged in failure, if you like. Um, yep. I find that idea really fascinating that he did those terrible crimes, um, but it got him nothing. Um, yes. Yeah, mm. whereas, you know, uh, in comparison to someone more successful like Governor Sterling. Mm-hmm.
0: and it's interesting too that there well they're, if you're looking at that kind of paralleling then you have um, a region as well so we often see the violence of colonialism colonization in these regional kind of massacres but you also have such um, high levels of um, drug use in regional areas too so yeah. it's it's kind of a constellation
1: it is a constellation yeah Um and it's got to do with poverty. Um, there's very, very clear con- uh, correlation between um, uh, between economic deprivation and Matthews. use. Um, up, for example, in Mandra, suburb of Mandurah, um, which exists as Summer Waters in my work, um, I fictionalised the name of it. Uh, is um, It ranks in the um, in the bottom four percent of the country for e- uh economic disadvantage um place where the the same place where that uh, giant statue was burned down recently um yeah so um uh there there is like this correlation you know, and you find it in areas of bunbury and areas of northern um between you know people trying to escape what's essentially a, a horror, a trauma in their lives and the escape of extreme drug use. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But there's often too, like, um, I'm not sure about using the word evil, but, you know, there's this question for me in reading the book about when does bad behaviour tip over into evil? Um, mm. I was thinking yeah. about Thomas Peel and I'm thinking about these um, these sort of drug dealer, drug users, that often there's a lot of bumbling behaviour you know yeah. it's um but but yeah where does bad behavior tip over into evil <laughs> is, is a, I is a question where,
1: <laughs> i don't know where the exact line is but that's that's very very well picked out um people t- kind of um you know there's this kind of idea of evil geniuses and that and that kind of thing you know the james bond villain or whatever but really like bad things are, are are done out of stupidity sometimes. Um, they're done out of not knowing sometimes. And, yeah, um, I guess like evil can be a kind of oblivion, a kind of lack of empathy for for other humans, as in the case of Thomas Peel. But I think it's really, that's a really sharp observation, Joe, because uh, T's journey is kind of, uh, he meets this really toxic male character earlier in a, a Russell Um it's kind of emblematic of stuff that disgusts Timmy um, about the way men act towards women. Um, and then he finds himself going towards that sort of behaviour himself. So it is a kind of a question for T. Um, you know, he says early in the book that he wants to think of himself as a good person. And, um, you know, the, a lot of the theme of it is how long can he hang on to that sort of illusion? While he's doing those yes, things.
0: Absolutely. So it's kind of an, an ethical inquiry too. I, um, I an ethical I really, inquiry,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I really like that about the book. I actually reminded me of um Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance a little bit, you know, some of the kind of elements of that kind of inquiry that you bring to it. Um it it does seem in some ways that that T is searching for freedom and there's that savage irony that that long-term addiction is is ultimately um, imprisoning, but I'm also so I'm really interested in the relationship between art and drugs, creation and destruction um, that that um, author Mel Hall brings out so well in the a review of Tea, um, which is on the Westerly blog. Could you speak about that relationship a little bit between freedom, creativity, drugs, how that figures in the novel? I know that's a big uh, question. Yeah,
1: I really, I really love Mel Hall's. Uh... A review, it was so existential, and that's just having read the book, you know, that's totally my jam. Um, mm. the that kind of existential writing. Um, so, um, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that T is searching for freedom. That's certainly one of the possibilities. Uh, what for reasons that is presented to him, uh, mostly by Cardo, who represents yes. that point of view. You'll find various characters in there representing different points of view that T kind of tries on for size, um, Mm -hmm. that Timmy kind of looks to. So Gobbo uh, postulates that, you know, a lot of this is about friendship and community. Um, Laurie Bird kind of postulates a sort of civic duty born out of affection and empathy. Um, And Cardo uh, postulates this idea of absolute freedom, you know, he's a, he's a Satanist. His ethics are kind of egotistical, um, uh, following the work of, uh, Anton LaVey and the Satanic Bible and that kind of thing. He's got this kind of, um, idea of absolute freedom as a way to happiness. Um, and I don't know that he's searching for happiness. Maybe he's searching for a sort of self-destruction. He's a kind of open character. If you ever read Plato, um, you'll find, um, People making these big rants, they sound like a bit uh, sorry, Socrates specifically having those big rants that sound a bit like meth rants. And a subcharacter yes. in the background kind of going, Oh yes, Socrates. Oh, okay, Socrates. And tease that kind of character is uh, letting people uh, uh, have those rants and taking in their philosophy and listening to it. Yeah, um, no, that's
0: interesting. He is a bit yeah. of a blank slate in some ways. He is a little here? bit a kind of a blank sponge. slate. Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, His sort of search is informed by him not knowing really what he's searching for. I think there's a moment earlier in the book where he's a little bit honest about it and he says, well, I'm kind of doing it to feel better. Um, So when I give him his childhood and his history, it's the reader can see it's not very nice. Um, You know, he he hasn't had a good start. Um, And um, that bit of honesty, even though T is such an absolute liar in the book. He's a total liar, and that's something really attached to addiction is it makes people into liars, but um, he's kind of identified as this liar who has really uncomfortable moments of honesty with himself and with other people. Um, so, yeah, um, I'd say that's more um, uh, what's going on with T's question there.
0: Okay. And how does... Um... Creativity figure into all of that. Um, this whole idea of like, well, if we're looking at destruction and creation, yeah, and well, there is a lot of creativity. A lot of characters are lean towards creativity mm, in different ways.
1: Sure. Yeah, well, it's something that enhances life. Um, and again, in making those people living this life the same as any other people, they're not. Um, they're not stupid. They're not untalented. Um. They're not people who can't uh, do art. They can't. They're not people who can't uh, think philosophically. Um, they're just people um, placed in a certain uh, genre of life where you know those aren't ways forward for them. They're just um, ways they sustain themselves, much like drugs. Um, they're ways that they think they feel they're living.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Mm. But in case this is coming across as very heady and grim, I should say that I, I did laugh out loud quite a lot while I was reading yeah, tea. So there's <laughs> there's a lot of really, really funny moments. I mean, there's some obvious kind of farce. I think the book the book opens with this sort of farcical scene of the moving of Gulp's um, body. But there's also these kind of elements of absurdism throughout and surrealism. What, what are you doing there?
1: Yeah, so part of the... Part of the book is um, is uh, Camus' Myth of Sisyphus, which is much why I've called the second section the Myth of Icarus. Um, it's all kind of based around this inversion of the absurdity of you know heading nowhere, um, uh, and an inversion of that you know we must imagine Sisyphus happy. So what about let's imagine Icarus as a success story? Um, so. Um, Uh, Yeah, humour and absurdity haunts absolutely every part of life. We can't imagine that people, even in grim situations, live entirely grim and it's part, humour is very much part of human search for meaning. I was always like, I always appealed to me that Viktor Frankl wrote um, about jokes in Auschwitz, you know, and that being important to people's sense of meaning. And if there can be jokes in Auschwitz, there can be jokes anywhere um so you know it's just unrealistic that people would live without humor and funny moments and part of the this world that i'm describing just is funny the random shit that turns up in drug dealers houses um which i'm not going to do a spoiler but which people will encounter with lord lord jingle muffins um it's it's real but it's absolutely absurd and funny at the same time. So why not make absurdity funny? To kind of follow on from Camus, uh, Camus' idea in The Myth of Sisyphus, um, you know, if everything's meaningless, why not have a laugh?
0: Yes, absolutely. I love Lord Jingle Muffins too, by the way. it's fantastic. <laughs> um, in an interview with the poet Emily Sun, you talk about writing magical stuff in real places how does magical realism function in tea and why conjure it? Um, I guess the falling bodies is an obvious example. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and ghosts. Um yeah. so there's a short I I gotta try and keep this brief because there's I could talk about this for literally hours. Um, the idea of magical realism. Um, so there's a short answer to it, which is I've got onto magical realism, Rushdie, and um uh marquez boy has when i was a teenager and i just liked it it really appealed to me as a way to tell a story um and always has um the other thing is i went to visit a friend who was coming off meth um and she was sitting in her mother's lounge room uh, talking to me about those spy planes that were following her um Mm -hmm. so that was a reality to her you know um so if you're writing first person or limited third person, as I've done in here, you know, why not enter the character's reality? Um, and why not make that the broader reality? It's like people use similes in poems, like, say, a famous simile is uh, uh, Elliot starts the love song of Alfred J. Perfrock. Um, The sky was like a patient added on the bed. Um, um, so what if we change the language in there a bit? What if we change the qualification in there and say, the sky was a patient evered on its bed? Then it becomes a whole different story, a whole different way of telling it. Um, and the metaphor that you might spend thousands and thousands of words explaining becomes very easy when you turn it into a, a mystical interface with the world. It becomes a kind of shorthand a folkloric symbol that's very, very um, pertinent to what you're talking about and explains Mm -hmm. things in a poetic way that you can't do with uh, simple explanation or reportage.
0: Absolutely. And it also has the advantage of holding ambiguity as well. Yeah, in interpretation, uh, because I think that there, a lot of the magical realism for me as a reader anyway in T functions as a kind of uh, you know, I c- it could be interpreted in a number of different ways. It, you know, some of it could be interpreted simply as a kind of somebody having a bit of a myth, you know, as, as mm. kind of the mind, really. But another, you know, there are other interpretations going on there, too. For sure. Um, And I wanted
1: to leave that open. I think it's also important to say, like, you know, take uh, Walter Benjamin's distinction between a storyteller and a novelist very seriously. And I want to incorporate elements of both. The magical realism is pure storytelling. It's just wondrous events that are interesting and compelling to read.
0: Yes, yes, that exist in their own right, as you say, yeah. and and gesture towards things, but aren't can't be pinned down. And I, I, I like that about the book. There's a, there's a lot in it that can't be pinned down, and that's important, I think, when you're representing this kind of community, as you're doing it, you're sort of trying to sort of do it accurately to get the tone of it as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. The reasons aren't always yeah. clear. Uh, no, have, no. Every human being has a kind of mystical interface with the world in some ways. I mean. Most people drive their cars without knowing how an internal combustion engine works. So it's a kind of, it's an act of faith, if you like. Um,
0: uh, in, indeed, or, or, or playing a record, I still, you know, kind of just look at just playing an LP. I mean, goodness, you know, they, there's so much that happens that yeah, seems yeah, yeah, yeah. to me to be magical that I have no idea how it works. And yet, as you say, you take it on faith.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, me neither. I don't know how an LP works, but I love looking no. at that black disc. Spinning under the nodal, it's yeah, it's magical. <laughs> exactly.
0: It is yeah. magical. Um, so I'm also you are talking about magical realism and you're talking about your your past experience in reading and so on. I think that um you I've I'm intrigued in, in reading that interview with with Emily that you've been writing this world for many years. So how does that kind of creative world that you've been creating relate to your lived chronological world and and will we see more of this creative world?
1: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been writing this, these ideas since I was thirteen. In some ways, my first attempt at a novel when I was was when I was thirteen. It was about satanic wizards in dwelling up. So in a way, I've never really uh, abandoned any of these ideas. I've just developed them. Um, so yeah, everything, all of my poems. Um, uh, all of my fiction happens in a shared universe. A lot of people do it. kind of happens in Marvel comics. Um, Chris uh has subtle hints of everything. His first character, Ari, keeps on making cameos in his other books. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, you will absolutely see more of this shared world. In fact, everything you read from me um, will be in this shared world, which... Uh, Brings up a rather scary proposition because my poetry is sometimes about me. It's not fictional, um, which means I might be an actual character in this world. Um, wow. I, don't I, really like wanna, this. I don't really want I don't really want to get into the psycho- <laughs> psychological depths of that. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's something I don't want to prod too much.
0: <laughs> oh well, I look forward to reading that poetry and and seeing. Um, we'll we'll finish up now and thank you so much for all of your generosity in uh, speaking so candidly and intelligently about this wonderfully provocative debut uh, no novel problems. thanks and, for that, it was a
1: great
0: yeah, chat uh, good and thanks everyone for tuning in thanks to Danny for handing over Words and Nerds for this episode and I encourage those who haven't yet read Tea to go out and buy a copy and enter this extraordinary world thanks very much
1: thanks John